The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to do something different today. I'm going to do something. Normally, I read a psalm, and uh, I'm not trying to replace the Psalter in any way. It's God's word. But um, I got an email from a girl in Brisbane, Australia. She's 20 years old, and uh, she, uh, she sent me some wonderful words, and uh, I, I'll talk about her more in the weeks ahead. But uh, this girl, only 20 years old, she's been on a mission trip to Soto, South Africa. Is that what it's Soto? Something like that. And uh, she, she watches the superior word. She watches the sermon. She watches the prophecy updates. She reads the devotionals. Imagine 20 years old and pursuing the Lord like that. And she wrote us something. So instead of a psalm today, I want to read this. It's called Read Your Bible. Without a fail, three times a day, people across the West sit down at tables to consume a well-selected fest. No matter in their rushing lives how busy they might feel, each one finds there's always time to partake of a meal. And yes, it is important to sustain our bodies thus, but there should be an aspect that's of more concern to us. We diligently feed ourselves on every sort of vittle, but then neglect the bread of life. We feed our souls but little. Yet souls are what we count, what will count for all when at God's throne we kneel. So every day feast on the word more than on your meal. Jesus said to watch and pray for his return is nigh, and yet he sees so many live for what will swiftly die. By reading daily of God's truth, your soul he'll surely nourish. It changes your approach to life. It makes your faith to flourish. So read your Bible every day and share what you have heard. Feed yourself upon God's truth, his great superior word. And that's Laura, Laura Gibson in Brisbane, Australia. Marvelous. I tell you what, I, I have not gotten an email that has so moved me in so long as the thing she said about the Lord, her family, his presence in their lives and all the things that she said. I just, I couldn't believe it. What a marvelous email. I've been just thinking of it continuously. Oh, marvelous stuff. All right, our uh, sermon today is going to be from Jonah 3. It's verses 5 through 10. We're going to finish up chapter uh, 3 today, and then we're going to be into chapter 4 next week, and we're going to finish chapter 4 in two weeks. And, uh, I can't think of a sermon where I've been more in prayer about than the last sermon of this book ever. And you'll understand why when we get to it. Um, anyway, Jonah 3, 5 through 10. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed to fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Now I'm going to stop there and I'm going to tell you that uh, once in a while, every week, my friend Doug Callerson in Ireland sends us a uh, 
painting that he's done for our sermon. He does it specifically for the church, specifically for the sermon. And the one this week, you all know that the one uh, that we had in Exodus of the afflicted widow and her child actually brought me to tears. Well, the one yesterday did as well. It's the king of Nineveh, repenting in dust and ashes. And you're going to want to see this. It is it is a marvelous. Go to my wall on Facebook. If you can't go to my wall, email me and I'll send you a picture of it. It is, it is marvelous. The emotion in this face of this king who is repenting. Verse 6, Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Proclamation appointing a national fast day. Washington, D.C., March 30th, 1863. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas the Senate of the United States devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations has, by a resolution, requested the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation, and whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, Yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do 
By this, my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. In witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done at the city of Washington this 30th day of March, in the year of our Lord, 1863, and the independence of the United States, the 87th, by the President, Abraham Lincoln, William H. Seward, Secretary of State. Our text verse today comes from Isaiah 52. It's the 15th verse. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Imagine how far we have fallen once again in this nation where we can't even say the name of Jesus Christ, who is so clearly written in every word and every sentence of Abraham Lincoln. If you know your Bible, you know that he almost quoted scripture. He just adapted it to the United States of America. Imagine how far we've fallen, the perverse agenda of the left in this country, utterly morally perverse in every way, politically perverse in every way, that we would fall from something so honorable and so glorious as this. When I first read this proclamation, I got to tell you, I broke down. I wept openly. I was in tears and I actually recorded it because I didn't think I'd get through it here. And I thought, I'm going to try, but I have a recording of it because I thought, I just can't do this. To imagine that a people would humble themselves in this manner or in the manner of ancient Nineveh is truly stirring to the soul. But such is the state of a nation when it realizes it has offended the power which ultimately directs it. Think of us right now, trying to turn this ship around and get back to him, and the left is all over it. In churches, they're railing against it. They're promoting perversion. They're promoting iniquity. In the halls that were once sacred, the government the lies that are being perpetrated on the people. And we're facing this in this nation because we have turned from the power that directs us and we've turned to wickedness, selfishness, anything but him. Time and time again, the people of Israel went through the cycles of turning to the Lord and then turning away from him once again. Until times of great distress were upon them, they went about their way, their merry way, ignoring him and even actively mocking him through their actions. During all such times, the Lord sent prophets to call them back to himself, but their words fell on deaf ears, and often the dead bodies of the prophets witnessed to the rejection of the Lord's message to his disobedient nation. What does a nation need repentance for when they already believe that they're God's chosen people and who are also deemed as righteous because of who they are? Such a smug attitude negates any such need for repentance. 
America of 1863 had come to such a point. But the leader of the nation, Abraham Lincoln, realized that their many blessings had become their curse. And so he called on the people to repent. And it wasn't just him. It was the Senate that voted unanimously to ask him to do this thing, to turn from their arrogance and to humble themselves before the God of the Bible, the God who had established them, meaning us. Such a call is needed once again, and we should hope it won't be long before it comes. If it does, will we respond? Only time will tell. One thing is for sure, Nineveh was given their warning, and even before they had fully proclaimed it throughout the land, the people were receiving it and they were acting upon it. And when the great leader of that city heard it, he sent forth the word to repent, just as Lincoln did. The city as a whole responded and the great destruction which was anticipated was held back from happening. Humility before the Lord is of great value in his eyes. Let us pray that we as a people will demonstrate this most admirable quality once again before it is too late. Such lessons as this are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Three thoughts for you today. The first is, so the people believed. It's verses five through nine. Verse five, might be two thoughts today. I think it's three. Verse five, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Ya'aminu anshe Nineveh be Elohim. And believed men Nineveh in God. These words are based on the proclamation of Jonah, which was given in the previous verse that which ended our journey last week. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It is of note that the same term for believed is given here that was given of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. There it said, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. There is, however, a difference between the two. In Genesis 15, Abraham is said to have believed Jehovah, the covenant-keeping Lord. So it was also with those salty sailors of chapter 1. In this account, it says the people believed Elohim, or God. Therefore, this is a clue that it is probably not to be considered justifying faith, as it was for Abraham or the sailors. It does, in fact, picture this, though. The turning of the Gentiles in Nineveh is a picture of the greater turning of the Gentiles to Christ, the Lord, in the dispensation of grace. And we're going to see that very clearly in the next chapter. Having said that, Jesus' words of Luke 11 must be considered. He said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Remember, it was only five words that he said to them. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. He does say that they will rise up in the judgment. Whether this means that they were saved or whether they will simply be able to highlight Israel's faithlessness at the same judgment must be left to God's eternal counsel in matters of final judgment. Here, there is no promise or covenant established with the Ninevites as there was with Abraham or as in Christ's new covenant. Rather, there was simply a proclamation that destruction lay ahead. Instead of justifying faith, it is probably a faith grounded in the mercy of God in this earthly existence. There is an expectation that if they act, he will relent from his designs against them. 
the entire account is showing a contrast between the Ninevites and the Jews. The Ninevites believed in God and were quick to respond to his word. The Jews had an intimate covenant relationship with the Lord, and they were slow to believe, slow to respond, and slow to repent. The story of Jonah is a prophetic look to the future when God would do something new through Jesus Christ. For the Gentiles, there would be a massive turning to the Lord. For the Jews, there would be a pathetically small group who faithfully turned to him, as Paul says in the New Testament, a mere remnant. Verse 5 continues, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth. And called out for a fast and put on sacks. It is unknown if this verse really follows in thought to that of verse 6, or if it actually occurred before it. The writer seems to indicate that as the word spread, the people responded to it immediately, humbling themselves and fearing what they heard. Each was intent on proclaiming a fast and putting on sackcloth both of which were external signs of an inward <coughs> repentance. Fasting was intended to deny oneself food in order to be reminded of a devotion to God. If one is hungry, they will be continually reminded of their hunger. If this is voluntary, it will then remind them of why they are hungering. Likewise, sackcloth was poor quality cloth. It would be itchy and it would be unsightly. The garments would be both a physical reminder to the body and to the eyes of their ongoing repentance. Both actions speak of a state of humility, not arrogance before God. Verse 5 continues, from the greatest to the least of them. Mige dolam ve'ad ketanam, from the most whopping and unto the least. From the throne of the king to the smallest child of the least servant, all participated in the fast and in the humble adornment of clothes. None felt accepted, for none was above the word of the Lord. Then this was either because or it was followed by the actions of the king himself. Verse 6, then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and reached the word to king Nineveh. This may explain the why of what occurred in the previous verse. And so the words would then be in the past perfect, for the word had come to the king of Nineveh. Or the words may show an elevation of the message of Jonah, which finally reached the ears of the king, who felt he was not above the actions of the people over whom he ruled. Either is possible. But the order of the verses seems to argue for the latter. The entire city had cumulatively humbled themselves, which was now followed by even the king himself. Verse 6 continues, And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe. And arose from his throne and laid his robe from him. The throne is the place of power, and the robe is a symbol of authority. By leaving his throne and laying the robe aside, the king is essentially acknowledging that in comparison to the call of the prophet, he had no authority and no power. It would be comparable to the surrendering of the sword by the defeated general. The king so firmly believed the word that he stepped aside from his own place of nobility and demonstrated what one would think was the greatest act of submission that he could possibly perform. But he went even further. Verse 6 continues, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Vekas sak veyeshev al ha'efer. And covered sackcloth and sat upon the ashes. The garment of the king would have been resplendent and beautiful and it would have been extremely comfortable as well. 
He would have stood out from all others, both in physical appearance and in physical comfort. And yet he put on the same lowly garments as all of the people had done, placing himself on their level, even to the point where none could tell if he were king or pauper. And even more, we are told that he sat upon ashes. It was a sign that he understood that the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah was due. When one sits on a throne, it is because they have a right to that throne. To sit in ashes then implies that being reduced to ashes is his just due. In assuming this position, it was then a petition for mercy. I understand that this is what I deserve, the fiery judgment of God, and I acknowledge that. Thine will be done. The actions of the king are the greatest acts of humility that he could perform. In the Bible, we read about another such occasion. Jesus laid aside his own garments in the most incredible demonstration of humility ever performed in the stream of time, time that he created. In the first, he set aside his glorious garments of divinity, which he bore from eternity past, coming in the mere appearance of a man. His divine splendor was hidden from sight, but he went further. At the Last Supper, he set aside his earthly garments to serve in the lowest manner of all. We read this in the book of John. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. The symbolism of the king of Nineveh setting aside his robes was prophetically realized and yet outmatched by the king of kings, setting aside his own robes to humble himself. In the first instance, an earthly king set aside a beautiful robe before the king of the universe. In the second instance, the king of the universe set aside his divine robes and then even his common garments in submission before the beings he created. Garments so rich and beautiful, those of a king, radiant in splendor and in majesty, To this one, all hearts should joyfully sing, robed in glory and of divine pageantry. And yet, they were set aside by this marvelous God. The robes common to all men he did don, and among the sons of men this one did trod, yes, in the garments of flesh which he put on. And in those garments he came to serve, the lowliest position of all he took upon himself for us. From his duties assigned by the Father, never did he swerve. And so all understanding souls hail the name of Jesus. Our second thought today, I was wrong. I said the first thought went through verse 9. It doesn't. It's verses 7 through 9. This is entitled the King's Decree. Verse 7, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh. And cried and spoke in Nineveh. These words are in response to Jonah's cry. Jonah cried out and the king responds with his own cry. It would be in the form of a proclamation and an edict in writing. The proclamation would be for all ears to hear and the published edict for all eyes to see. It was to be done so throughout all of Nineveh so that no person could be exempt from the word. Despite having humbled himself before God and having stepped away from his throne and his robe for humility's sake, he still bore the authority of the kingship over the people. And so it was with Christ. Despite having humbled himself and having stepped away from both his throne and his divine appearance, he still bore the authority of his kingship. It makes his actions all the more remarkable when this is properly considered. Verse 7 continues, By the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, 
Mita'am hamalek ugedolav lemor. By the taste, the king and the whopping ones saying. The word ta'am indicates a taste, and thus it extends to what is tasteful to a person. And so it can indicate a mandate, a decree, and the like. The use of the word in Hebrew to mean decree is unique to this verse. However, the cognate word in Aramaic is found in both Ezra and Daniel with the same meaning. Therefore, it shows that the author was acquainted with this personally. It is a beautiful touch of confirmation that Jonah was indeed the person who was called to Nineveh and the person who recorded the account for us. This is also the last use of it in the noun form in the Old Testament. Another confirmation of sorts concerning the truth of the account is that the decree is sent out not merely by the king, but also by his nobles. This corresponds to how the functioning of these eastern governments issued edicts. Unlike those in Israel, which were issued solely under the king's authority, again, it is a nice touch as to the reliability of this story. Verse 7 continues, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Ha'adam ha'bakar al-yitamu me'uma. The man and the beast, the herd and the flock, no taste anything. The noun ta'am used above to indicate the taste or decree of the king is a variant form of the verb ta'am or taste for man and beast here. His ta'am forbids their ta'am. The tasting of food and water for both man and beast is forbidden. This verse has been called ridiculous, extreme, and even comical by liberal scholars. They tear apart the story of Jonah over verse after verse but they really tear it apart with certain verses, and this is one of them. Here's a portion of the less than insightful commentary in the preface to Jonah in the liberally biased translation, the New Oxford Annotated Bible. I spent $85 on this Bible, and it was the worst investment I ever made other than to find out how utterly ridiculous liberal scholars are, how blasphemous they are. I could take you through highlight after highlight, chapter after chapter, of how they tear apart the very word of God that they are supposedly trying to uphold. Disgusting. And this is what permeates churches all over the world today, seminaries all over the world today. Listen to how they open the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is also uncharacteristic when compared to other writings in the prophetic tradition in its use of humor to make its points. Humorous qualities such as exaggerated behavior and they cite running away from God. Never mind that that's exactly what the apostles did, isn't it? And they go on, inappropriate actions, and they cite sleeping through a violent storm. Never mind that Jesus did that as well. Outlandish situations, and they cite offering a prayer of thanksgiving from inside of a fish's belly. And my thought was during that sermon, what better place to pray? Think of it. Ludicrous commands, they say, and then they say animals must fast and wear sackcloth. Well, you want to know why? I'm going to explain it to you in a few minutes. And they'll have egg all over their stupid liberal faces for how they tear apart the word of God. They go on or out of proportion, being angry enough to die because a plant has withered. One, they have no idea what that plant is picturing. They have no idea at all. And when we get to chapter four, you are going to find out. And it's not a plant, just so you know. They say they appear throughout the story. That was the crummy scholars at Oxford. So stay tuned, libs, because we're going to define what this book is trying to tell us and what God really intends. It's not a book of humor. It's a book of one of the most sad chapters in human history. 
one of the saddest chapters in all of human history, and one of the most victorious as well. But you're going to have to wait till chapter four. However, even those who accept the Bible for what it is and not just a ludicrous story have trouble understanding the words of this verse. But what seems extreme to us doesn't really seem extreme if we just pay attention to our own habits. When a president or a former president dies, or when any great dignitary or wealthy person dies, family and friends are not the only ones covered in mourning cloth. Even the animals are. The presidential horse, if you've ever seen the death of a president, Sergeant York is its name. That's the name of the presidential horse, Sergeant York. He's adorned in black, and the shoes of the dead president are hung backwards over it. What brute beasts cannot learn of God's judgment through reason, they are still expected to learn at the hand of the master through the wearing of sackcloth and the withholding of their food. And the words are all-encompassing. The animals mentioned include every animal possessed by the people. None were to be exempt. The king understood the people's commands always included their animals, and so how much more should their repentance include them? I had my friend Burke Carrico, you know, he's in the Bible class with us on Thursdays, and he asked me about this verse. Charlie, why are they doing what they're doing with these animals? We're going to find out now. Verse 7 continues, do not let them eat or drink water. No dew, feed, and water, no drink. It is clear from the Bible that the beasts of the earth share in the sins of man, and thus they share in the mercies that God shows towards man. If a city is to be destroyed, the beasts were not exempt. If the city was to be saved, the beasts would share in that salvation. Verse 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. And be covered sacks the man and the beast and cry unto God with might. The verse is clear that both man and beast were to cry unto God. This is the last of six uses of the word koska in the Bible. It indicates with strength or with force. Their cries were to be sharp and strong, even so that the city would resound within the walls. It is also the last time that sackcloth will be mentioned in the Old Testament. There is a call to repentance, which is being answered by a pagan king, which is remarkably being used by the Lord to show his erring people Israel how they too should act or to relay to them that the consequences of their failure to act lie solely with them. The words of this verse are directly contrasted to what Isaiah records concerning the people of Jerusalem during the time when destruction lay ahead. Nineveh is donning sackcloth, and it is in a state of complete repentance, even to the covering of their animals in sackcloth. Isaiah records exactly the opposite occurring in Jerusalem. He says, And in that day the Lord of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, the scariest verse in the entire Bible. Surely for this iniquity, there shall be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. They not only failed to mourn and repent, they had a party and feasted on the animals that were left to them. Nineveh, instead of feasting on their beasts, covered them and had them cry out to God. Now, on the surface, though, this doesn't seem to make any sense either. How can beasts be trained to cry unto God? However, it naturally follows from the deprivation of food and water. 
The Bible will explain itself on this. In the book of Joel, for example, it says this, the beasts of the field also cry out to you, to the Lord, meaning, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured open pastures. The fasting was to continue until the beasts themselves raised their voices and cried out to God. The king understood that the beasts would either cry along with the humans in involuntary, restrained feeding and directed humility, or they would cry along with man in destruction imposed upon them by the judgment of God. Verse 8 continues, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And let turn man from way the evil and from the violence that in their hands. Again, these words are given in direct contrast to the words of Isaiah concerning Israel. He uses the exact same term to describe them as the king of Nineveh uses. Here's what it says in Isaiah 59. Their webs will not become garments nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. He uses the exact same term. Where the king of Nineveh was concerned about the violence in the hands of the people, the hands of those in Israel were filled with it, and yet they were unconcerned over it. Think of America today, people. The time is coming. I am so thankful we got what we got in our election, but there is still a lot of work to be done. In this verse, it specifies the evil ways and the violence of the people rather than the animals. But this does not mean that the animals were not involved in those acts of wickedness. In at least two ways, they were probably implicated. And the king, knowing this, would have been all the more desirous of their being brought into the same state of humility as the people. First, they were used in sacrifices to the false gods of the people. The king, hearing the proclamation from Jonah, would have come to understand that the true God was calling them to account. Secondly, what is contrary to nature itself and that which is ingrained in the human psyche is the wickedness of bestiality. At least five times in the law of Moses, we read about this crime. Here's one of them from Leviticus 18. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Mandating that animals wear sackcloth makes total sense when one realizes that Nineveh's wickedness surely included this crime along with the crime of sacrificing their animals to false gods. In order to show complete humility at their actions, even the animals which participated in the people's wickedness were clothed in sackcloth. Such perversions along with all other acts of violence and wickedness were to be mourned over and repented of. Verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and relent? Miudea Yashuv Necham Ha Elohim. Who can know will turn and sigh the God? The king of Nineveh saw that there would be nothing to lose in abasing himself and his kingdom in order to be saved. The simplicity of the message, the Hebrew foreigner who cried it out, and the weight of the conscience in the mind of all spoke to the fact that there was no other option than turning away from the course that they had followed. In this verse, we have the second use of the term Ha Elohim, or the God, in the book of Jonah. If it's not in your Bible, which it's not, put the in front of it, okay? In this chapter, in verse 5 and in verse 8, it simply said God. However, now the king specifically states the God. It is an acknowledgment that even if there are lesser gods, there is one true God. This supreme God has called for the destruction on Nineveh, and so it is to him that his words are directed. This 
is in the proclamation which has been sent out to all of the people of the kingdom. It is astonishing to me that no Bible translation properly translates this article the few times that it's used. It is showing us a fundamental truth that is found in every culture on earth. Man may not have a right understanding of who God is, but man understands enough to know that there is the God above all other gods. Although the Ninevites didn't have the prophetic word other than five words uttered from the mouth of Jonah, God's general revelation of himself is still written on the hearts of men. We can deduce things about him without ever having his full revelation. And so, with just these five words to convict them and to speak to their hearts, the people have, as a whole, and as directed by their highest leader, demonstrated that they understand enough about this one God to know that he is not only a God of wrath. They had rain for their crops. They had flowers with countless colors and smells to delight their senses. They had the familiarity of the sun passing over their heads to warm them and illuminate their way during each day. They also had the twinkling of the stars above their heads at night and the cool breezes to ease the trials of the work which was behind them. From these and 10,000 other hints of his divine grace, they knew that he must be loving and that he must then also be merciful. Each undeserved blessing of creation spoke to them of these things. And so the five terrifying words of this prophet were expected not to be their end, but their turning point. And in their turning, hope for another such turning was laid forth. Verse 9 continues, And turn away from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. Veshav mecharon apol velo noved. And turn from burning away and no perish. It is no small thing that the words of this pagan king are almost identical to the words of the Lord himself as directed to the people of Israel through the mouth of Joel. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. The Lord demonstrating his nature in the words of Joel was confirming that the same nature to Israel as his words were passed on to them. Even though Nineveh only received words of assured judgment, the very fact that the words were uttered showed that mercy could be found. Thus, he is a hoped-for God of mercy to the pagan world, and he is an avowed God of mercy to his people. If we can know that we are violating his standards and are worthy of condemnation— just as the book of Romans tells us, then we can also know that he is capable of forgiving those transgressions and showing mercy. The people of Nineveh figured this out and called on the true God to turn and to relent. Gracious and merciful is the unseen God. How surely this is evident to all people if they will but look. Radiant flowers adorn the paths that we trod and tender grasses to be found by the brook. The summer brings crops in abundance from the earth, and the fall brings relief from the summer's heat. Even winter is never a time grace is in famine or dearth. The winter to every youthful heart is a wonderful treat. Each meal we have comes from his gracious hand. In abundance or lack, can we then complain? Why is it so hard for the sons of man to understand that God has ordained it all, both joy and pain? He does this so that we will seek him while he may be found. In all ways, if we but look, 
we see his goodness does abound. Our third thought today is, then God saw their works. It's verse 10. Verse 10 says, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. Vayahar ha-Elohim et mahasehem ki shavu midarkam ha-ra'ah. And saw the God, the works of them, that they turned from the way evil. The king had pondered if the God would relent of his destructive intent. They had set forth their works of repentance, and they had turned from the evil path which they had trod for far too long. Their path was evil, but their turn was more than just to another wayward path. Instead, it was a full turn to the one which was directed to God and to his throne of mercy. How unlike Israel, whose stiff necks continuously remained and which remain to this day still stiff-necked towards God. The contrast of what is placed before us is as clear as the finest crystal. The wine in the cup which was mixed for Nineveh on this day was one which was intended for salvation, not destruction. The cup of which Israel would drink after hearing of the sign of the prophet Jonah, on the other hand, would be the opposite. They would reject the good and receive the bad. The name of Jonah is being intimately connected to the word yain or wine, which it is showing us exactly what wine signifies in scripture. It is the merging together of grapes, which is intended to result in the thing that ought to happen, symbolized by wine. Jonah spoke and that which ought to happen has come about. Jesus spoke and the thing that he prophesied would occur likewise came about. The final words of the chapter confirm that the God did, in fact, relent towards Nineveh. They acted, he responded. Salvation, even if just temporal in nature, came to Nineveh. Verse 10 finishes with, And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And sighed the God of the evil that he had said to do to them, and no did. Again, the term the God is used in this verse. This is speaking of the true God, and the wording is anthropomorphic. The Bible at times ascribes human traits to God so that we can understand what has occurred. God did not relent from the destruction that he had purposed to carry out. Rather, he did not do what he had threatened to do. The threatening was conditional based on the actions of the people. He knew what their actions would be, and therefore there was no change in him except from our perspective. Finally, it is to be noted that the term God alone has been used in relation to the Ninevites in this chapter. Unlike chapter 1, where the sailors did call on the Lord, Jehovah, these people have only been placed under the mercy of God. They have not come to understand the covenant name of Jehovah as the sailors did. This repentance then, even if it was temporary, showed a willingness by the Gentile peoples to accept the word of God as it was minimally revealed to them. Through that word, they turned from their wicked ways, thus allowing God to demonstrate mercy towards them. It is an anticipatory picture of the time when Israel would wholly turn from the true God as he revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and that this covenant of grace would be directed away from Israel and towards the Gentile people of the world. He is proving here and now that he is the God of both Jew and Gentile. Any who will accept his word and his revelation of himself can be called into a covenant relationship with him. And this is exactly what occurred in Jesus Christ. 
a new covenant was established through his shed blood. It is a covenant based on grace alone. Even with a minimal understanding of the work of Jesus Christ, one can be saved. The gospel is for the neurosurgeon and it is for the numbskull alike. Whatever level of education or lack of it that we possess, we are all welcomed by a mere act of faith. So don't muddy the waters when witnessing. Keep the gospel message simple and keep it understandable. The word of God has come. He has walked among us and he asks us to believe that he is capable of saving us. Not because we deserve it, but because he is the God of grace and mercy. If nothing else demonstrates this to us, surely the cross of Jesus Christ must. God was willing to turn from the destruction of Nineveh because they turned from their evil ways. How much more will God save us from his wrath when we accept the punishment which he has already carried out in his own son for those who believe? Let us not fail in calling out to him and receiving the greater salvation which comes from the shed blood of Calvary's cross. Very simply, I'm going to keep this so simple you can't believe it. You're a sinner. You need Jesus. He died in your place. Believe that and you will be saved. He came out of the grave to prove it. Accept that in your heart and that is what God asks of you. Don't tear apart his word. Don't listen to people that diminish it and say that it has errors and it has faults. We have seen so many times the incorrect analysis of these liberal scholars and how detrimental it is to proper theology and to a right relationship with God. I'm telling you what, if the Beatitudes are true and every liberal church in America reads from them, guess what? The rest of the Bible is true. And on the last page of the Bible, there is a lot of condemnation going on. There's a place called the lake of fire for people that will not bow their knee to the Lord and accept his words. Don't be fooled by people. Open your eyes and look at the word of God in a new way today. Follow it, pursue it, believe it, adhere to it, apply it to your lives and receive those rewards that Paul talked about at the beginning of the sermon. We get this one chance at life, one chance for all of eternity. Our rewards are based on a couple of breaths. Think it through. A couple of breaths and we're going to be gone. The Bible even says that. Man is like the grass of the field. It sprouts up and it withers in the scorching heat. And that's in a day. In a day. Our time on this earth is so short. Our closing verse comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's verses 8 through 10. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It is coming. Nineveh was spared the wrath, but the wrath of the world is coming. The book is written. It already, it, it already says what's coming. It has the amen at the end of it. It will never change. It will never be amended. God is not one confused soul. He is the creator. He is unchanging. And this book is going to come true. The wrath is coming. And we're waiting for something different. We're waiting for the redemption of our souls in a time where we're going to be in his presence, where this is literally hell on earth. Next week is Jonah 4. It's verses 1 through 4. Never think that his goodness is odd. He is a gracious and merciful God. That'll be our ninth Jonah sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean rages against you and is ready to swallow you up, he can send delivery to you in the most remarkable of ways. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay?
Our poem today is called The Repentance of Nineveh. What a thing to believe. A city gets a guy walking through the streets. There's every reason to believe that this is true because there are extra biblical evidences to, to tell it. They repented and they were a monotheistic society for almost 100 years after that until they finally turned away, went back to their pagan ways. Extra biblical evidences show us that this is a true story. One man, five words, one glorious God, right? The repentance of Nineveh. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast sackcloth they put on from the greatest to the least of them. These garments of humility they did don. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. His humility was openly shown. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Yes, these are the words he did say. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. Nothing to your lips you shall bring. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. We know he understands. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent? And turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish, so that mercy can be sent. Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it that day. Lord God, how gracious you are to save those who will but turn. If we abandon the reckless path which we are on, help us to think on this and then to learn before the number of our days is expired and gone. Now, yes, now is the time of salvation, and to you with hearts grateful and full we turn. Praises to you, O God, from the grateful nation of people from all lands whose hearts for you burn. Thank you for Christ Jesus our Lord and for the gospel message found in your superior word. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the faithful who have gone before us and penned such marvelous words as our former president who understood the need for repentance and turning away from wickedness and back to you and to a sound adherence to your word. Thank you for Doug Callerson, who painted such a beautiful, beautiful photo, painting of, of that king repenting and the distress in his eyes as he looked to you. May each one of us be in that state where we mourn over our wickedness and over the things we do wrong and to talk to you constantly because we're always flubbing up and to just acknowledge from flub up to flub up how undeserving your grace is but how thankful we are for it thank you for mercy which keeps us from what we actually deserve you are so very good to us lord we continue to pray for our three uh, heart problems in this church and that everything will be resolved by the end of next week so that we have full reports of everything that has been done and that all the reports are A-OK and, and fine. We pray for that, Lord, and we pray for everybody else that's having struggles and trials and physical afflictions and oh, just the difficulties that are emailed into me each day. It, it, my heart breaks for people that are suffering in the way they are, and it's also grateful to you for those who treat this as their church write in and say, we're so thankful we found you here and that we can fellowship with this great group of people in Sarasota, Florida. It's such an honor. It is such a privilege, and it's undeserved how great you are, oh God, to connect us in this way. We love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do it in the beautiful and exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen.